0: talk show for all things automotive from the latest news to the greatest views and the biggest names in rolling iron your host is brett hatfield freelance auto journalist senior auction analyst for sports car market magazine and american car collector magazine writer and editor of readthedriven.com and owner of his own small but growing fleet of cool cars get behind the wheel of an hour of car talk starting right now in the driven radio show
1: We are Driven Radio. You're in the right place to get some cars in your ears. (laughs) Absolutely. And uh, I'm Brett Hatfield. I'm a senior auction analyst for Sports Car Market Magazine and American Car Collector Magazine.
0: Freelance auto journalist. I'm here with my co-host, Catfish Groves, who is just a guy standing in front of a car lot asking it to love it. (laughs) (laughs) And a 30-year radio vet. Let's
1: Uh, get over that.
0: Uh, Catfish, we got interesting stuff in the news this week. Oh, there, there's great stuff in the news and uh, great stuff. Uh, you've, you've got a guest lineup that is so awesome for this show. Uh, your your bud, Luke Channel, from uh, Associate Professor of Technology. Yes. Oh, associate Professor at McPherson College Auto Restoration Program. We love McPherson. Yes, we do. McPherson is the shiznit.
1: And uh, I'm still threatening to drag you down there and take you through all of the buildings and
0: yeah, I want to go see all the stuff that I have no damn clue about. I really do, because uh, after working on a vehicle and pretending that I might know what I'm doing,
1: now, nah, baby. Well, our boy Luke is the ultimate tour guide, so once we get down there... Oh, awesome. awesome. ...have somebody I, to show us around.
0: And I've heard when that he has a pretty nice house and can do a pretty cool uh, barbecue. We'll have to, have, to, he, have to ask him about that. I think he's guilty of both those. <laughs> But first, I guess we got to get into the news. Yeah, get your brain in gear for what's going on. Time for What's News on the Driven Radio Show.
1: Hey, Jeep fans. Uh, you know, you finally got a pickup coming from Jeep next year. Oh, yeah. They've got the, the Gladiator coming. It's based off of the Wrangler. It's essentially a Wrangler with a pickup bat on the back. But Jeep fans have been asking for that for years.
0: I love those old Jeep trucks from uh, the late 60s, 70s. Yeah. Just cool looking, kind of honcho, you know, uber masculine. There's All they do is shove air. That's the only thing they're designed for is to be flat and push air. And I really respect that. Well, they got the aerodynamic qualities of a rhino cage at the zoo. It's a brick that has four-wheel drive. Love it. But, hey, they were never meant to be all that fast. They were meant to go places. Yeah, yeah, get you there.
1: And they do. Well, Jeep fans begged and begged and begged and begged and finally convinced Jeep to make a pickup based off of the Wrangler. And they got that, and they said, well, you know, that's that's cool, but... uh, it might be more fun if we had a Jeep pickup based on a Wrangler that was a Raptor competitor. No, So Jeep has now set their sights on the Ford Raptor, and they're coming out—well, rumor has it that they're coming out with a Gladiator-based car called the Hercules, a juiced-up, <laughs> jacked-up, desert-racing Jeep. Uh, it's We're seeing— you know, it's you, the
0: Diogenes. You,
1: you got to leave it to to Christ.
0: Magnum. Leave power.
1: it, leave it to Jeep to come up for great car names. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. Absolutely. Uh, We're seeing renderings online. Uh, there's, uh, there are some Jeep forums that have been showing this thing. They're talking about it possibly having a turbo two-liter uh, diesel engine. Oh, my God. Or an upgraded version of the Pentastar V6, which is a 285-horse engine now. With, not too bad. No. Or, oh, please, oh, please, I'd consider getting one. They're talking possibly Hemi V8. Really? Yeah.
0: Oh, my God.
1: <laughs> and if you do that, eventually, you know, that thing will work its way backwards and wind up in a Wrangler. And that's when you're going to have to pry me away from the Jeep dealer.
0: Oh, my God. Yeah. All you'll need to do is put wings on it.
1: Oh, absolutely. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Nice. Oh, man. Just to be back and have a V8 Jeep. You know, I've only owned four Jeeps so far. You saw. <laughs> you saw the last one. I tried to pawn it off on you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you know, it was so close. But, it, you know, since it was for my son and he was looking at it and and. I'm very proud of him by the way because you had you had a terrific price and it was so kind of you but uh I you know after my cautionary tales of if you don't really know what your skills are you might want to really think about mm-hmm. it and he really thought about it well it wouldn't have
1: had to had anything to do with the fact that it had been painted black with a barn brush
0: i think he actually kind of liked that that's the hilarious thing that's really different yeah it is yeah (laughs) some things are different for a reason so is a three-legged cow but you still don't want to write it (laughs) just saying son
1: all righty and now from the uh oh you little bastards file (laughs) speak it up Four underage boys broke into a Houston-area CarMax lot on Sunday, and they're caught on surveillance cameras. You know, the CarMax here in town has a, uh, a low fence. It's about knee-high. It goes around okay. the entire dealership and a couple of gates, and it's made out of galvanized pipe. Right. And so it's pretty heavy-duty. You're not getting through that. Well, Apparent- they break into a dealership. What are they doing, like spray-painting stuff on the walls? Yeah, no, no, no. no. Uh. I'm not real sure how CarMax stores the keys for their cars, but these guys managed to get into whatever container. Where was this at? In Houston. Houston, okay. And so they decided, well, hey, we can get our hands on all these keys. We can't leave the lot, but we can make a racetrack out (gasps) of the lot. Went out to the lot, found a a Dodge Challenger with a scat pack, drag pack on it. Uh, Went and found a Corvette Z06, a Ford Mustang, a Porsche Boxster. And, and just
0: hot rodded them, right? Just, just.
1: Oh, went a step further. Not only hot rod them, but decided to play the full size version of bumper cars. No! And just destroyed oh! all four of those and a ton of other cars. These four kids running around in this lot did over $800,000 worth of damage. Uh, the, oh, my God. When the sheriff's department showed up, they said that the uh, Challenger had the front end ripped off. No! The okay. Z06 had. Uh, Scrape lines down both sides and broken rear view mirror. A Ford Mustang that looked like it came from a car meet, uh, you know, oh, demo oh, yeah, derby. Demo
0: derby, yeah, yeah. And
1: a uh, Porsche Boxster with a nasty hit to the front end. Plenty oh, of other cars that, that look like they all sucks. got into a fight with each other. Uh, deputies arrived. The suspects took off on foot but were later caught and arrested. And uh, they're being charged. <laughs> where, what is it? Criminal mischief in the first degree? Oh, you think? Yeah. Mischief? I'm guessing after they're found guilty of that, they're going to be... Sued civilly would be my idea. And yeah. since they're all minors, it means their parents oh, will Mom be sued civilly. Oh. I'm not real sure if your homeowner's insurance has an umbrella policy <laughs> that's quite going to cover that. Oh, you're not Eight, in
0: good hands with Allstate. They're just going to, bye bye
1: Yeah, yeah $800,000. I wonder oh, what wow. the sentence is going to look like.
0: Can they keep you in juvie until you're 47? It makes me feel so much better about the crap that I pulled as a teenager. I grew up in Branson, Missouri. We would just go rearrange the letters on all those stupid roadside signs. <laughs> where the star is meat to eat became oh, where yeah. the star is, And it And we did rude things. There was a devil worship at the Methodist church at nine. Oh, well. You, know, <laughs> you the, know, it was, it was the, simple stuff. The sign outside
1: Captain D's instead of said, saying cod platter said cold pet rat. <laughs>
0: Now, I, I will admit that we did spray paint the horse's hoo-ha that was at the <laughs> Jesse James Motel. They had the rearing big, you know, horse that was, it, but it it was anatomically correct. Oh, no! And nice. that was really the wrong thing oh, to have beside a road
1: Lord. with more oh. kids
0: at 2 a.m. However, wow. you know, I, I never, oh my God, this is awful.
1: Yeah, I'm pretty sure that there are some very disappointed parents out there. <laughs> $800,000. You know what that really says? Those kids were there. They had time.
0: That's yeah. not something
1: you do by putting dings on a few cars and then That's a lot off. of effort. That's some real time spent there, oh. and that's an awful lot of damaged cars good grief glad it wasn't my kid amen so coming up next we've got uh, assistant professor Luke Chennell from McPherson College Restoration Program Uh, Luke's a heck of a guy yes he is he knows more about cars than uh, well than either you or I or both of us combined
0: dude when it comes to me anybody knows more
1: (laughs) and and he's a hell of a barbecuer so uh, we'll get to talk to Luke about uh, car shows barbecues and all the stuff he does at the college coming up next on Driven Radio You're listening to Driven Radio. We are here with Luke Channel, Associate Professor at McPherson College in the Restoration Program. Luke, welcome to the show. Glad to be here, Brett. And... I know Luke more than I probably should. We went through the program together mm, a long time ago. Too was, many years yeah, to count. Too, too many years <laughs> yeah, to let's count. Let's not. Let's let's skip the <laughs> count. So much history. <laughs> and, and Luke is is famous for an entirely different reason. Every year after the college auto restoration student show, which is a show that's unbelievable for a little school in central Kansas, Luke hosts the famous post-show barbecue. And uh, we all go over there, and I act like I know what I'm doing when I'm cooking uh, sausages and grilling stuff. And we all drink maybe a little too much and eat a little too much, and it's a fantastic collection of car geeks all in one place. It's one of the things that I look forward to all year long. Going to your house, eating great barbecue, drinking a little too much, burning my eyebrows off with a grill, and getting to see all of our friends. So I'm just thrilled you're here. Thanks for coming in.
2: I had planned to ask you if you would like to be the sausage specialist, as you have been in previous years. So if
1: you can be the sausage specialist one more time, Brad.
0: I am the sausage king.
1: The fact that you... I'm the sausage king of McPherson, Kansas. The fact that you would have to ask... (laughs) <laughs> and, I ha- and I haven't permanently cemented myself that spot. I'm there, buddy. Okay. I'm absolutely right. there. We'll as you. long as you're serving that same cold craft brew you had last year, the stuff that was so cold it would give you an ice cream headache. Fantastic. I Love it. Can, I can do whatever you like. I am at your, at your leisure. So getting back to what you're really known for, tell us about all the things you teach at McPherson. Uh, I teach primarily – well, I teach in the
2: automotive restoration department. Uh, So I teach cars from 1970s backwards. And uh, we have about seven or eight specialists at the college who teach different areas. So I'm pretty well versed across really – most car stuff. Uh, But I focus on chassis, drivetrain, uh, and I also teach a class in materials science. So really my specialty is transmissions, uh, rear axles, uh, steering, suspension, and brakes. Um, And I teach, I I really teach things from a historical standpoint. So I teach the technical evolution of how cars came to be, uh, because I think, Teaching restoration is really about understanding the design principles and the history and having kind of a sympathetic view towards all of those things. What characterizes great restorers is that they, they're they more than technicians. They, they really can speak to cars and can give the level of depth and care uh, that,
1: that really just a plain old mechanic doesn't. And to that end, you've got just a little bit more education than you find – in your average car restore, would you like to discuss your background a little bit there, Doc?
2: Well, I mean, as Mark Twain said, I never let my uh, education get in the way of my learning. Um, <laughs> that said, you know, I, I did. I graduated from McPherson, and I, I, think we're running the best automotive school in the world. I that's my goal, anyway. And uh, I think the I people... think
1: that's a consensus view, uh, not just from uh, we who attended there, but also from other people in the car community.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. when they talked about uh, the students helping with you know the Concord delegates. Oh, yeah, and like the students, the students. Yeah. Holy moly. Yeah. Yeah. That's some that's some good learning. Yeah. The, well, what's amazing is the students
2: blow me away. The people that come to us from all over the country and even the world uh, to learn stuff from me. Uh, sometimes they teach me things. So, oh, yeah. So really, I mean, I got most of my car education there. And then kind of from a formal academic standpoint, I have a master's degree in public history, uh, which – uh is uh I, I see the look on your face and i can tell that that, that i've completely flummoxed you so let me explain that public history uh
1: as opposed is, to private history as
2: opposed yeah, yeah, I know, yeah right? we don't know all about your private <laughs> yeah. history no no
0: let's not go there at all <laughs> uh-huh. um, a
1: lot of my private history has been public and that's
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah certain people could stand to learn that lesson uh, uh-huh. So anyway, uh, but public history really involves historians working outside the traditional discipline of writing books and articles and doing things that that nobody reads. So the idea is to, uh, as a professionally trained historian, bring the level of care, scholarship, references, uh, and analysis to, to things that might not normally seem like historical disciplines. And so for me, restoration fits that model really, really well. And that's that's what I enjoy.
1: And this has been a lifelong pursuit for you. You started way early. Way early. I
2: did, yeah. my di- Well, like a lot of people, my dad uh, was really, and still, he was and is into all things that move, steam locomotives, airplanes, cars, tractors. Uh, and so, you know, we would go around to engine shows when I was a kid. And uh, one of his engine buddies gave me a little 1950s Briggs & Stratton engine. And when I was five, we rebuilt it together. When you were five? When I was five, yeah. And so then- from then on, uh, whenever we were at one of these swap meets engine shows, whatever, I would get five or seven dollars and uh he be allowed to purchase whatever engine I might find so now, in the basement of our house, I have the engine room where there are <laughs> something like 75 or so Briggs and Stratton engines, well, but I try not to count.
0: I got to admit, I think it's fascinating because I, I've, I sell books at, at events and fairs and stuff, and there's usually some like homemade ice cream person dude out there, and he usually has this ancient little engine that's you know and it's got the little well for water Mm -hmm. that you pour water in and it steams out and that's how the engine's cooled yeah and like these are these are amazing why is this running how does this and then you're the dude that since you were 5 years old has been taught that
2: yeah i mean we used to go out for a weekend and just watch engines run i mean that was good entertainment and when you see it sounds crazy but when you see something mechanical like that moving and just the dynamic nature of it and, and the fact you know that people built this with relatively uh, primitive technology yeah. uh, uh, that's what i found fascinating and that that's what drives my interest in cars well
1: and he he says in the basement of his house now y- you've got A house, and I got a house, and we've got, and they're not terribly dissimilar, and they're a little cookie cutter, you know, there's there's a bunch more. Give Mark a thumbnail of your house.
2: Well, um, the best way to start (laughs) is that it used to be a museum. What? Uh,
0: <laughs> so we're we're the
2: second family to live in the house. Uh, it's a, it's a large brick Tudor-style house. Actually, the the art, architects that designed it designed the President Hotel here in Kansas City.
0: Oh, no kidding. So if
2: you go on the Country Club uh, Plaza, several of the houses there were designed by the same architects and are similar. Nice. Um, so a big brick Tudor house, about a small 7,000 square feet. Uh, oh, dinky. Um Big footprint, but yeah, he,
1: but he's preserved what the house is inside, oh, yeah. Yeah. and it's really, really amazing, and it, it just lots of woodwork. Just, going, and just going to Luke's is like stepping back in time, and it's then you go really down really into cool. the uh, motor basement.
2: Exactly. You know, you can go down into Area Fifty One to my wood shop and the engine room. There are all kinds of mechanical wonders down there. Oh, so, dude, how fun! Yeah, yeah. The, the museum is a fun place to live. Every night is night at the museum. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Very cool. It it is a cool place. You really ought to see it. Um, so, first engine was at five. First car was.
2: Um. Well, really. Curiously, I didn't get my driver's license until I was 18. Really? Wow. Because I made a pretty specific calculation that uh, if I was going to have a car, I'd have to get a job. Oh. And – uh <laughs> I, it might not appear so on the surface, but I'm actually kind of lazy by nature. And so I was resistant
0: <laughs> to uh, that whole job idea. I wish so... you'd have shared that wisdom with my kid. <laughs>
2: <laughs> a little bit of planning was in order there. Well, so anyway, done. <laughs> um, but to answer your question, my first car was a 1981 AMC Eagle SX4. So not The, the convi- little stubby two-door hatchback. Exactly. The one based on a, a spirit. The,
1: the one p- that should have been a rally car.
2: Yeah, exactly. And, you know, they built uh, the AMX two-wheel drive version yeah. using uh, a 304 V8. But, uh, but yeah, it was one of those. And it, it was a—I le- grew up in Colorado. I grew up in the mountains, and it snowed a lot there. And Eagles were absolutely the best snow cars. Uh, the viscous coupling four-wheel drive and uh, just the overall weight balance made them just— It looks, in it the looks
0: snow. like an angry Vega. It kind of really does. Like it it kind of does. Cool.
2: It, 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 it's cool. It takes a face. It's got a face that takes a while to learn to love,
0: but uh, but yeah, if that well, face well, will plow itself through yeah, a giant it, pile of snow, it probably gets easier. At four by four, when you've got snow tires on all four tires, yeah. oh hell yeah! Yeah, we used to run
2: studded <laughs> snow tires on all four tires. The and, thing I mean, you'd climb a tree. Run. Oh you yeah. Could, you were. I mean, you could go down a mountain road at seventy miles an hour and not know the difference.
0: Also, kind of <laughs> like if a Chevette worked out. That's the best description I think I've ever heard.
2: So I've
1: been giving my little car some steroids.
2: Uh, I can do it. The other reason that I I kind of enjoyed Eagles was that AMC people are just completely off the wall. There's no one normal that drives an American (laughs) Motors product, and
1: so you you ran into some very unusual characters. Oh, I'm sure. I can imagine. So first car, uh, the invincible AMC. Or semi-invincible, or at least got around okay when the snow was out. Uh, how about favorite car so far? Uh,
2: definitely my favorite car is my Model T. Uh, it's, uh, I call it 1920. Um, it's an assemblage of parts I put together that includes uh, three tractor seats, um, some two-by-sixes, and the better part of a Model T running gear.
1: You're you're laughing. He's not kidding. No, I'm I, uh, looking at his face. I'm like, oh, yeah, this is all real. There, there's oh, barely boy. enough there to consider it a real car.
2: <laughs> and it runs. Oh, it runs good. I, uh, I. It's kind of a sleeper in that when I put it together, I just had whatever junk was in the pile. And so I've gone through over the years and then rebuilt every component to the best standards possible so it's now a 50 mile an hour tractor
1: Uh, (laughs) (laughs) and and he has every year at the car show you'll you'll be thinking where now luke go next thing you know here he comes around the corner and it looks like a frame with three seats on it and a motor. Nice and, but, but always starts, always runs, and you always know, always know who's behind the wheel of that thing. We'll be right back in a minute with more Luke Channel. We've got lots of ground to cover and plenty to ask him here on the Driven Radio. We're back on Driven Radio with Luke Channel. We're talking about uh, some of the early cars you owned and some of the stuff you've done. Uh, this is one of my favorite questions to ask my gearhead buddies because I've heard some of these stories and I know how they go. Best car story slash dumbest thing you ever did in a car? Please uh, answer dumbest thing. Please answer dumbest thing. Please. <laughs> well...
2: Uh, I, I, that's hard to come up with a specific example. but There's so many. <laughs> I, think, I, I think my favorite story involves the Model T. Okay. Uh, shortly after I put it together. So the fuel tank I got for it, uh, it came out of somebody's yard. They were using it as a yard ornament. So, so some <laughs> wow. friendly squirrels had gotten in and packed the, the, the gas tank full of pine cones. And so... <laughs> I didn't really want to deal with this problem myself, so I took it down to the gas tank shop. The guy boiled it out, and then he helpfully gave me the box of pine cones because clearly, (laughs) you know, you have to give all the parts back that you needed. (laughs) Uh, So anyway, so he didn't quite get all the pine cones. And because of that, I had kind of perpetual problems with pine cone debris plugging the fuel line on the thing.
1: So so you carry a handful of... Uh, fuel filters in the box with pine cones right uh, a shotgun.
2: Fuel, f- who needs a fuel filter? I mean, <laughs> that, that's superfluous. Oh, wow. That just slows the fuel down. Uh, so, <laughs> here's what happened. Concurrently, I had kind of some medical problems that turned out not to be that serious, but I had something called Bell's Palsy where one side of your face gets paralyzed. Oh, yeah. So, I had to walk around, you know, with an eye patch because I couldn't blink. So, not only did I look like a pirate, but I was slurring my speech like I, you know, <laughs> was kind of perpetually half drunk. Um, so, <laughs> This anyway, is
0: just going places I didn't expect at all. So, this is why I love this question.
2: So, anyway, so I, I, to relieve the stress and all this of my various problems, I was going out for a Model T ride. So, I'm out in the boonies, you know, dirt road, central Kansas, <laughs> middle of nowhere, which is the best place to drive a Model T, absolutely. So, the fuel line plugs up. And of course, I've got my wrenches that I carry. And so, I know how to get the fuel line off and all this. And usually, what you do is you just blow back through the fuel line, right, to get the, the fuel cleared. Well, I couldn't close my lips. (laughs) So I'm there on the side of the road with gas kind of semi-dribbling into my mouth as I try to pinch one third of my mouth closed. No.
1: And finally, well, so. I feel so bad for laughing. (laughs) It was pretty hilarious. Uh, I was really really hoping you were going to say somebody stopped and offered you help, and you said, can you blow in your dish? (laughs) (laughs) I wish someone
2: would have stopped. But nonetheless, just the picture of myself oh. there pinching my mouth closed oh, to blow God, back into the fuel line so bizarre but, you know when when there's no way back home other than what you
1: brought
0: that's the thing you <laughs> that's do that's what you do <laughs>
1: oh. So. oh wow oh man all i'm right, not even baby. sure i want the dumbest thing you've ever done in a car you're not gonna you're not gonna beat the bells palsy pirate on the side of the road <laughs> yeah. the drunk bells palsy yeah. yeah. all right he, he's slurring and he smells like gasoline <laughs>
0: Well, how about your dream fantasy car? I mean, with all the stuff that you've owned you've, and all the stuff you have in your basement, the thing you've you've seen a lot of vehicles in the restoration program. My God, I can't imagine the cars uh, that you've had the chance to touch. So, what's your uh, what's your biggie?
2: Uh, the one I would love to have really is a Jaguar XK120. Um, for a long time, one of our friends of the program you're
1: kidding was, it's not an ugly yellow pantera.
2: Uh, it's hard to believe I know <laughs> uh, yeah but for a lot of years, one of our friends in the of the program had uh, uh, Briggs Cunningham's xk 120 which no had kidding. an early model with tripod headlights aluminum body and that was just absolutely my dream car
1: i didn't know that yeah that's really impressive yeah, absolutely uh there's an in joke catfish about uh yellow pantera because one came through the shop while we were both going through the program and if you'll remember the thing never really had much for brakes so when we were taking it on nighttime test drives the emergency brake was about all you had <laughs> and a car would go like hell But slowing down was a different story entirely. (laughs) Kind of of built on the Bugatti
2: model. I build my cars to go, not stop. Absolutely.
1: And I can't remember who the guy was. There was another guy who was going through the program when we were there, and he was older than we were. And he described the build quality on the Pantera as built on a third shift on a Friday after a couple bottles of wine. I can't remember who he was, but that was the best line. I never forgot that. Um, Okay, so XK120, early one if possible.
0: Now, is that the uh, convertible that you're talking about? Or did you do you want the like the swoopy kind of bulbous hard top that looks really cool? They came in three variations. Uh, there are the Roadsters.
1: Drophead.
2: And the Drophead Coupes. And yep. the Fixed Head and the fixed head, and the fixed head Coupe. And actually, my ideal would be a Drophead Coupe with, with roll-up windows. It'd just be a more practical car. Yeah. The Roadsters are plenty great looking, but yeah, side
1: but, curtains are a pain in the ass. But top down, they just look outstanding. They're so stinking pretty. Ooh, so, nice. uh, Well, you won't let me ask you that question. Uh,
0: (laughs) Smart man. (laughs) There's a list, and it's been checked twice, and the naughty's been tossed. (laughs) Oh, but
1: we're going to discuss that later off air. Uh, So, you've been teaching this for a while. What's your best piece of advice for novice restorers? You know, the thing I've learned about this
2: is you need to think first about your motivation for cars, because I think a lot of people think that restoring a car is going to be fun, and, and it's a rewarding process. But it's not always fun. No, there's a lot of time spent cleaning bolts and parts and sanding, and, and there's
1: just a lot of drudge work. So, well, there's also a fair amount of time putting band aids on knuckles and stuff and, like and that. And bank accounts too. <laughs> oh, you have a bank account? No, not if you're restoring a car. So, <laughs> I was say, I got a lot of cars I'm working on. I, what is this bank account you speak of? Uh, yes. Well, I, I've learned this, Brett.
2: So, uh, so so, when I say that, question your motives first. Uh, if what you want is a car to drive and enjoy, then go out and buy a car to drive and enjoy. Yeah. Restoration has its rewards, but it's not something you should undertake lightly or think is going to take six months even, and be relatively simple. It's really easy to talk yourself into a project that's way above your head. And the other thing is, it's always more fun to drive the car you can drive instead of working on the car that you have to work on.
1: Yeah, yeah, true. Uh, And that's it's real interesting you bring that up because the – The nicest condition car, the nicest condition older car I've ever had is probably that 61 Impala. You don't see me out in it. You just don't. The Corvette is probably the coolest restored car I have, or you know, it it runs in league with the Impala. But it's never perfect, and I never try to get it there because I drive it. I enjoy it. I want to have fun in it. And if I get them too perfect, I probably won't. And it, for me, my Model T, you know, it doesn't have any paint on
2: it. It's completely rusty. And I love that because there's no. Yeah, but that thing's just cool. Well, and if somebody comes up and stands on it, you know, if some kid jumps on the fender and puts a hole in it, it's just more patina.
0: Yeah, it's kind of impossible <laughs> to door ding. <laughs> it's too. more personality. Yeah. Yeah.
2: So, so I mean, for me, working on cars is ultimately not the end goal.
1: Um, I understood. Um, most common re- restoration mistake either by pros or by amateurs, what do you see people doing when they're working on their cars that you would, if you could take them aside and politely say, you know, maybe you want to approach this differently? Um, The
2: biggest problem people have is overestimating the amount of time, effort, and skill that they have.
1: Ah, uh, <laughs> uh, guilty as is, charged.
2: Oh, yeah, that's, I, that
1: is so true.
2: I, I think it's wise sometimes to jump in over your head and do things that aren't you aren't necessarily comfortable with. Well, it's a great way to learn. But you can take that way too far. Oh, yeah. And, and you know, I in special interest autos which is no longer a publication but one of the new editors wrote once that you could restore a car with a pair of vice grips and a hammer and oh, it, it just my tukus yeah i well, well maybe a 55
1: plymouth Shut
0: up it was a 56 and no you can't you can't even weld with a vice grip and i tried no but you can, you can armor all the seats so much yeah, that, that, that your just you slide, can't slide right still. off of it. Okay, <laughs> yeah. guilty as of charge there too But. Uh,
1: just not knowing what they're getting into fully? Yeah, I, I think having a plan
2: and adhering to the plan and doing your prior research really are the things oh, that will, due save,
1: diligence, yeah. will save you Absolutely. so much effort down the road. Uh, so you've been at McPherson for quite some time. I won't say how many years because I don't need to date you like that. Uh, in the restoration program, there have been a lot of changes. There have been some pretty big changes. Can you talk about what you've seen come in like the past 15 years uh, since you graduated and came back as an instructor? I think the thing that that I
2: marvel at when I stand back um, is, you know, when I showed up, if it wasn't a pre-war car, and I mean pre-World War II, yeah. nobody was interested or there was very little interest. You know, 50s cars were kind of considered sort of interesting. I remember being admonished about that yeah. while I was there. And so now, I mean, the, the bar is really moved and muscle cars... You know, I always like to say, when I started into this stuff, if you were driving a Camaro, it's pretty likely your girlfriend was wearing a tube top.
0: <laughs> 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 and now... short shorts
2: and now maybe that's for third generation camaros but but (laughs) certainly cars of that era have a lot more respect and a following from people that appreciate them a lot more for their engineering and design more than just speed and wide tires Uh, true
1: true absolutely true and i think that well you can speak to this better than i can the student body has grown Uh,
2: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there, there's, there's are two things going on there. One, I think I both love and hate the car shows on television. I I can't stand to watch them. You and me both. They have done so much to generate interest among young people in cars and, and more than in just cars, but in building things. And I think that's, that's the, the bright side to all those people cursing at each other in shops. Um, The other thing that's happened is restoration as a craft really has come into its own and people are willing to spend good money and they understand that the corner garage doesn't have the capabilities to do it. So now restoration professionals are beginning to be paid like professionals, meaning that you know students now when they graduate often have two to three job offers which when i graduated it was that was, was like, not the case no i mean you were lucky to be to have a place to go yeah
1: so uh, the field has just come into its own really luke thanks for being with us i appreciate it i'm looking forward to the barbecue i'm looking forward to that <laughs> and we'll be back in just a couple minutes we've got uh, we've got some excellent live to discuss coming up next on driven radio show We're back with more Driven Radio Show. Uh, Mark, I've been looking around and found some interesting stories. We've been discussing the last few weeks how we've seen kind of a course correction for prices on classic cars. Right. Uh, Seen things come down, you know. Ferraris rose so meteorically after the uh, housing bubble burst when people were looking for something other than real estate and uh, stocks to put their money in. And Porsches did the same thing and Lamborghinis did the same thing and all the exotics, especially the stuff that was cool in the 80s. Because current Gen Xers finally have a little bit of disposable income to go out and buy all the poster cars that they had on their walls when they were
0: kids. And think about 20 years back, uh, any generation, the cars 20 years ago are so different. Yeah, uh, from what you got with. Heck, when I got my first car in the 80s, uh, uh, 1980, uh, 20 years beforehand was 60 and mine was a 55. So it was right in that right in that kind of sweet spot of, oh, those are different.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So we've been seeing a little bit of a downward turn. But according to the website, <laughs> uh classic cars, along with art and wine, were one of the best, if you'll pardon the pun, investment vehicles of 2018. People were looking for places to put their money, and they said that uh, that
0: classic cars as an investment were one of the great places to put it. Well, you know i I can believe that up to a point because I'm I'm at the butt end of the baby boomers. Yes, and uh, we're I'm finally at a place where you know what it's do or die. Literally, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm gonna get my darn car, and uh, we're I, I can see where that investment. But let's look ten years down the road, and or even twenty years down the road. There, I, I hate. I don't. I don't know any other nice way to put it, but we're dying out. Yeah. And when we do, all of a sudden, these garages are going to be going yeah. with these kind of cool cars. Is there going to be a glut? Well, and I think there's going to be a glut, but it's going to be the glut that was considered
1: uh, the really investable stuff of the past twenty years. Try five Chevys. There's going to be a ton of them that hit the market. Uh, you know, you're going to see a bunch of that stuff come out. And uh, we're seeing a little bit of price softening in mid-year Corvettes. And we've talked about that before, 63 through 67. And that's always been a blue chip car too. And we're seeing some of that come back down. I think what these guys were talking about when I got into the article is the super high-end.
0: Okay.
1: Truly, uh, you know, top of the food chain blue chip cars. And, uh, you know, like out of uh, Monterey this year. Uh, R.M. Sotheby's auctioned off that, it was a 62 Ferrari 250 LM, and the thing went for $44 million. Oh, 48 million with commission, right? Yeah, well, you throw, the, <laughs> you, you throw on the 10% from the auction house, and it is 48 and a half, 48 and a half million dollars. And there was an Aston Martin DB4 Zagato that went for, I think it was mid-20s. It was a ton of money, and that was a world, world record price for an Aston. And so... I think they're right to an extent. And, you know, the super blue chip stuff is yep. always going to be the super blue chip stuff. Uh, and the cars that only the super wealthy can touch are going to continue to trade in that Amongst realm.
0: the super wealthy. I mean, let's, <laughs> you know, if, when it becomes kind of that status thing of, oh, now I have it. Yeah, I can, I can get that. Whereas, you know, that an Edsel yeah, just not going to quite get up there. No, I don't think she's ever going to make her. So sad. Hey, don't feel (laughs) don't
1: feel too bad. Neither are sixty one or sixty (laughs) three Impalas.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. so
1: I I don't think any of the three of us sitting in this room own any of those blue chip cars.
0: (laughs) You know what? We bottom feeders. We still need those.
1: You're not a bottom feeder. You're just a guy who operates with a piggy bank, which is probably a good chunk of our audience, too, <laughs> uh, to be real honest. I know your feel. <laughs> we, we we all have a different piggy bank. I kind of – I had a weird thing go on the last couple of years and came up with the cars that I came up with. But I that Corvette I've had for 30 years. I've just never gotten rid of it. When I got the car, it was probably only – about a $30,000 car. Now, at that time, that would seem like all the money in the world. Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> and it's worth significantly more than that now. Nice. But it was just, I haven't done a lot of smart things in my life, but one of the smart things I did do was never getting rid of that car. And part of the reason was, it was always so cool, I couldn't bring myself to do it.
0: You know what we need to do to uh, protect our investments, guys? Huh. We need to make sure that Cuba goes back onto the nobody can go there zone because they're going to flood the market with all these cool cars. I didn't have a chance to last week. I meant to ask uh, uh, Drew Alcazar about, uh, you know, are people looking at that as a place to go and just suck the cars out That would have been a really
1: great question. But the thing is, with Cuba, they spent so much time trying to maintain those cars when they had an embargo and they couldn't get any parts and they couldn't get anything for them. You go down there and you see – you know, fifty-six Pontiacs rolling around with boat engines in them. And
0: uh, yeah, okay, true that.
2: <laughs> yeah, I, I think Cuba is a red herring in that conversation. It's, it's. Is ultimate. it more
0: parts than than well, actual cars?
2: I think there could be a market for Cuban cars, just as interesting artifacts. But, yeah, but they're not competition from the really? traditional market. That well, we're they talking about. they
1: had to come up with their own uh, mechanical. Uh, yeah supplementation for you know stuff they didn't have so what else can we make this run with plus a lot of them are a lot of them are painted like rainbow floats you can't believe how they look and that's what makes it so cool (laughs) they did get a little creative they did get a little creative
0: well that's a number of the vehicles that i've looked at some of those big chryslers and stuff are so popular in eastern Bloc uh europe
1: and wow. especially
0: you get up top. I know. Shut up. It no, takes no, no, it, it no, takes I'm a, a damn Viking to drive the thing. Okay, <laughs> up in Denmark, where they're like, ah, ha, ha, eat flash drive Chrysler. Uh, those things are so so popular. And I think you've just explained a whole lot of your fascination with uh, yeah, I do think I did. Yeah, but I ate a Viking. Look at me. <laughs> but those uh, the vehicles that they're doing. They're they're taking all these classic American vehicles and suddenly making them pristine. Yeah. And I wonder if that will also affect the market in the future.
1: Uh, you know, only time will tell. Interesting article. You can check that out at Uh This is just, it's, it's one more thing that we're watching to see what's happening, what's evolving. And it makes being in the car community fun because you get to see history happening all around you all the time. Um, I personally hope cars get cheap. Because <laughs> I like cars
2: and I like cheap cars.
1: I, 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 think all three of us are in agreement on this. I want all of them to get cheaper. Like I said, I like driving them. I, I, I like by, being behind the wheel, and they should be taken out and driven.
0: You know, well, it's like you said earlier when uh, uh, you mentioned that. Why are you buying the vehicle? Yeah, the the investment vehicle is one thing, but if all that goes down, that just means. Hey, there's there's people like me, only a lot younger, who'll be able to get a really cool car at a really nice price. Well, and that's the other and th- that's when Teslas are going to be all over the damn road, and they'll be the ones driving the wacky ones.
1: But that's the other thing we've discussed is the upcoming generations. You know, Gen Xers are heavily into the collector car world now, and uh, and and uh, oh, I'm going to have a senior moment, uh, Gen Xers and whatever and letter and after them yeah and millennials there we go. yeah thanks for reminding me of our fa- Gen
0: <laughs> we have a facebook Damn page kids get we, off my lawn we have a facebook page <laughs> called millennials
1: who love cars and i can't remember it <laughs> uh, <laughs> millennials are coming into the collector car world now just like that article we talked about a couple of weeks ago so cheaper cars will work and cheaper cars do need to be
0: there because it gets the new generations involved. The, uh, well, I, you know, I always keep yakking about the 55 Plymouth I had, but when I bought that, uh, back in 1980, it was 55 Plymouth and the car, the car was 350 bucks. The paint job and repair was 463. I paid more for that than I did for the vehicle. Sounds like a grand slam under a grand. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, and then you had to do the brakes. We had to rewind the generator because it. Blah blah blah. Had to spend sixty bucks on armorall. But that car was great, and the memories in it. So if if these, uh, yeah, if it goes down, I'm, I'm I'm all good for it. It's you know let's pass on the love. It's, well, it's we, the cost of sharing the love. We've seen a little bit of a price correction. I think that
1: may continue, but uh, blue chips are always going to be blue chips. I am Brett Hatfield for Catfish Groves and Luke Channel. Thanks for listening to Driven. Yeah, Luke,
0: thanks for joining us for so much of the show. Thanks for listening
1: to Driven Radio.
0: Very glad to be here, guys.
1: Bye-bye.